As you hear sounds coming up in your head, thoughts, you simply listen to them as part of the general noise going on, just as you would be listening to the sound of my voice, or just as you would be listening to cars going by, or to birds chattering outside the window. So look at your own thoughts as just noises. This is Billy Hansen, and welcome to another episode of Sauce Talk, a podcast about sports and the mind and trying to live well in general. Today's episode, I'm going to play another chunk of my audiobook, and this is going to be chapters six and seven. These chapters are about my, really the lowest point of my mental suffering in college. It's outlining my difficult freshman season and then all of the pressure I put myself to have a good sophomore season to recover and how counterproductive that was. And I really tried to write honestly about how miserable I was as a sophomore in college. And unfortunately, in sharing this story with other athletes, I've discovered that this isn't all that unique. I think some of the physical limitations that I felt on the court were relatively extreme. The fact that I couldn't make free throws anymore and how difficult it was to do basic actions on the court. I think that was on the extreme end, but just the general depression and misery of being an underperforming scholarship athlete is not that rare. And many athletes go through it and athletes who aren't as lucky as I was to run into a skillful therapist and have a supportive family who continued to love me and encourage me, and then ultimately to have a great new coach and a fresh opportunity. Um, A lot of them just drop out and they end up really embittered about sports and end up losing their scholarships. And so I consider myself really fortunate to have come out of this era. And so this part of the book is detailing that misery. And without further delay, here is chapter six and seven of my new book. Chapter 6 Imposter 1. After an emotional day and night saying goodbye to friends and family, I boarded my flight to Denver with my mom and dad. Mom helped me set up my dorm room. Saying goodbye to my parents, knowing I wouldn't see them again for months, wasn't easy. I realized for the first time how much my life had changed. Some of my older friends who'd played in college warned me that coaches who'd pampered and praised them during recruiting weren't nearly as friendly after the paperwork had been signed. When I showed up at the Regis gym for the first time, I was relieved when Coach Daniels greeted me with the same warmth and respect he'd shown me when we first met in Ashland. But I felt nervous walking with him into the locker room. Coach Daniels is tall and lanky. He has a sharp basketball mind and an infectious personality. He showed me my nameplate above a locker and explained locker room etiquette, emphasizing that Coach Porter was strict about the rules. Then he asked in his usual friendly tone, you want to do some shooting before we check out the cafeteria? He probably expected me to say yes, but I felt a surge of anxiety and muttered something like, I'll come back when I have a little more time. He nodded, and as we left the gym, I felt relief. I know now that when that happened, I'd already become a victim of imposter syndrome. 
Somewhere in my subconscious was the idea that I'd snuck my way onto the team and that if I shot in front of coach, he'd wonder whether he'd made a mistake by offering me a scholarship. The slight hitch in my shot hadn't gone away. Somehow my left hand was too involved with my release, and it only got worse with nervousness. That scholarship I'd boasted about to friends and family back in Oregon now felt like something difficult to live up to. I'd spent years putting $10 at a time in my gas tank and hunting for lunch specials so I could save my allowance. Was I really worth $44,000 per year? This dynamic is surprisingly common. Renee Perkle, a sports psychologist who works with Pac-12 and NBA basketball teams, told me that many of the players she deals with feel like imposters, that the other players on the team deserve to be there, but they've somehow snuck into the party. I knew nothing about this as a college freshman, and for as long as I could manage it, I tried to avoid playing in front of the coaches. But of course I had to play in front of them, and every time I did, I left the gym creating stories in my mind about what they might be saying about me behind closed doors. In my mind, I'd already become a failure. 2. The basketball team held an optional open gym on the Friday before school started. My new teammates had been welcoming enough during my visit, and now it was like the locker rooms I was familiar with, complete with freewheeling jokes and playful insults. The locker room talk soon shifted to that night's parties. The other freshmen and I were told the address of a house on campus where a quote-unquote pregame, the drinking before a house party reserved for those on the team, would start at 8 o'clock sharp. My partying experience was limited, and my plan for college was to remain mostly sober due to my athletic commitment. But the upperclassmen commanded respect, and I wanted to make a good first impression. I showed up at the pregame address 15 minutes early and was immediately offered a bottle of Burnett's Pineapple Vodka. My teammates stared straight at me to see what I'd do, so I tipped the bottle back and took a big mouthful of cheap vodka that burned my throat as I struggled to swallow it down. Fuck yeah, this kid can party, somebody said. I understood how to fit into my new environment. 3. In high school, I'd been faster and more athletic than my teammates and opponents, so I showed up to practices and games with more than enough confidence. My wake-up call at Regis was watching the other guards on the team smash windmill dunks during warm-ups. These were players from places like Texas, Southern California, and Arizona. I'd liked and respected my high school coaches, but their level of intensity was nothing like what I experienced at Regis. Having rarely faced serious criticism, I was totally unprepared for Coach Porter. When I arrived, he was entering his 35th season as the head coach. Despite his worn-out knees, which made him grimace as he moved, he seemed younger than his age, and he turned out to be an honorable man who demanded respect. Even though many of us mocked his coaching style behind his back, we all sought his approval. But he was furiously intense and demanding on the court, so even though much of his criticism was valid, the threat of getting yelled at was intimidating, and I responded poorly to the new pressure. My lack of defensive training created a major problem. 6'3 is relatively tall in high school, so I often guarded forwards and sometimes even bigs. In college, I had a hard time staying in front of guards who were my size and faster than me. I wasn't prepared to play effectively in the RMAC and should have been benched or redshirted my freshman season. I found myself in the playing rotation because Regis had been 2-20 in conference play the year before. They wanted to invest in the new talent in the hopes that we could turn things around. In our first game, I started strong against a team from a lower division, scoring 15 points, including some three-pointers. Then, when tougher competition came, my weaknesses were exposed. 4. The high school competition I was used to had been sped up by about 
What had been enough space to shoot from in high school wasn't enough anymore, and many of my shots were blocked or altered. I was bullied in the paint by bigger, stronger, faster guards. As the season progressed, my confidence evaporated. As this happened, I adopted the drinking habits of my teammates. Our games were on Friday and Saturday nights, and every Saturday night I got drunk. By mid-season, I felt tired and run down, both physically and mentally, and I spent more and more time on the bench. Still in the hunt for a playoff spot late in January, we hosted Adam State for a crucial matchup. We battled them to the very end, but found ourselves in desperation mode with less than a minute remaining. I was in the game because we needed three-pointers to make up ground. Down by four with time winding down, Kevin, our point guard, knocked down a wild three-pointer. We moved into a frantic press to try to get a steal, which left us exposed over the top. The inbounder threw a football pass down the court and connected with his man, who, stupidly, rose up to dunk the ball. Out of timeouts and down by three with only seconds remaining, we were in panic mode. The ball was inbounded to me under our own basket. Sensing my defender, stupidly, running towards me, I moved into him as I flung the ball towards the rim at the opposite baseline. As I watched the ball fall far short of our basket, the screech of the whistle sounded in unison with the final buzzer. The three-point shooting foul the referee called threw the Adams State bench into a wild protest. My first thought was, oh no, I have to make three straight free throws to send this into overtime. I looked toward our bench, and I can still remember Coach Daniels clapping and saying, good job, but his eyes told me he had no more confidence than I did. Approaching the free throw line, my heart was pounding and my vision seemed to blur. I tried to refocus my attention as I caught the ball from the referee. The opposing players were peppering me with insults. Don't worry about it. He'll choke. Look at him. He's shaking already. I went into my routine and nervously released my first shot. It bounced on the front rim, hit the backboard, spun around the hoop, and finally fell in. I hadn't prayed in years, but I remember thinking, maybe God is going to help me do this. I touched hands with my teammates while teammates and coaches yelled encouragement from the bench. I caught the ball from the referee again and began my dribbling routine. As I bent my knees to go into my shot, I heard a vicious voice from behind me saying, pressure busts pipes, motherfucker. This release felt better than my first one. I watched the ball glide towards the basket, rattle inside the hoop and pop out. Game over. After the game, Coach Porter addressed me in front of the team, emphatically telling me not to beat myself up about the missed free throw. He even caught up with me before I left the gym to make sure I was okay before going home. My teammates encouraged me not to stress about it. I was thankful for everyone's support, but still felt about as miserable as I'd ever felt anywhere. Under the shower in my dorm room, with my head pressed against the wall, tears fell into the running water. 5. We missed the playoffs by a few games. I played an average of 14 minutes in all 25 games and finished the season shooting a dismal 31% from the floor, 24% from the three-point line, and 47% from the free-throw line. By any standards, it had been a miserable season. I felt as if I'd been tossed into the deep end of a pool and didn't know how to swim. By the time basketball ended, the baseball team had already played in eight preseason games and had established team dynamics and chemistry. Meanwhile, I hadn't touched a bat in months. In my first practice, my swing felt slow and my throwing arm weak. I had trouble assimilating into the team because many of them treated me as an outsider. The coach recommended that I redshirt. My swing didn't come around until a couple weeks before the end of the season and I spent every practice impatiently waiting for it to end. Trying to do well in two sports seemed hopeless, 
so I gave up baseball to concentrate on salvaging my basketball career. Six, what had happened? When I opened my eyes, I found myself on the floor in the narrow canyon between my bed and my roommate's bed, my clothes and the floor smeared with vomit. The smell was awful. I checked my phone. Multiple texts from a volleyball player asked if I was okay. I texted her yes and asked what had happened to me. She explained that she'd stayed with me most of the night and taken care of me while I shivered and vomited. A boy on my floor had seen my legs sticking out of a bathroom stall like a dead body. Inside the stall, he found me face down and passed out. Knowing that an RA would take me to detox if he found me, which would circle back to my coaches, he and a friend dragged me back to my room and texted the volleyball player because they'd seen me with her earlier. Because I was shivering and dry heaving, she'd almost decided to take me to the emergency room. I didn't remember any of this, and all I felt was guilt and shame. I'd completed a transition from a self-assured, committed athlete to a pathetic, self-destructive drunk, a burden to my friends and classmates. I thanked and apologized profusely to everyone involved, and I bought them gifts for their help. I looked forward to home. I was an underperforming athlete without an academic direction, but with a drinking problem. Chapter 7. The Spiral. 1. It was a relief to escape Regis and the pressure to perform, but as soon as my Oregon summer began, I started worrying about it ending. Without an organized plan, my summer training was erratic. I worked hard on the court and in the weight room, but my momentum was often interrupted by family trips and by too many opportunities to drink too much. Whenever I left town on a family trip or to go camping or to a ball game, I worried about the workouts I was missing. And when I did work out, I felt unsatisfied with my progress. Sometimes I left the gym furious at my mediocre shooting. My mom is a teacher at an elementary school in Ashland, and she'd sometimes give me the key so I could go shoot late at night. Once, after missing consecutive free throws, I punted the ball so hard that I put a hole in the gym ceiling. How did I become so enraged? August 23rd came on like a storm cloud. I lost sleep in the nights leading up to my return to Regis. 2. Back in Denver, things started decently. My coaches noticed the muscle I'd put on in the weight room during the summer, and I played well in our first couple of open gyms. There was an enjoyable buzz around the team, a honeymoon phase common in team sports, when players, coaches, and fans all share an optimistic view of how the coming season will likely unfold. But my optimism soon began to fade. After a few subpar practices, a couple of embarrassing air balls, and being yelled at a few times by my coach, I was back to constant worry about underperforming. I don't remember any single moment that zapped my confidence in shooting the ball. Instead, it was as if my confidence tank had sprung a slow leak, and over the course of weeks, the tank was drained. I didn't know how to deal with unkind criticism and tried to hide my insecurities from the coaching staff. My anxiety on the court increased. I'd been nervous before, causing me to play tentatively and ineffectually, but never before had the simplest acts become challenging. I felt a numbing tension in my hands, chest, and face, making every movement feel unnatural. My mind seemed to freeze, and I felt waves of nausea. As bad as my freshman year had been, this one was worse. 3. I had no way of anticipating the depression and paralyzing performance anxiety that would afflict me at about mid-season. But looking back, I realized that my mind was developing the necessary prerequisites for that outcome. I thought about upcoming practices and workouts incessantly, and became intensely nervous before every practice. Desperate to have a good season, 
and trying to apply advice from self-help coaches on YouTube, I accepted the premise that in order to achieve success, I'd have to work tirelessly and make every conceivable sacrifice. Hoping to gain an advantage over my teammates and to generate confidence, I started making outrageous commitments to myself about how I'd live. For example, I decided that stopping drinking and partying altogether would solve my basketball problems. One Friday night, the team was organizing our pregame in a group conversation. We had practice the next morning at 8.30, and I'd promised myself a good night's sleep. While all my friends were out enjoying themselves, I stayed home alone and did my best to rest and relax, hoping to outperform them at practice. But instead of getting enough sleep, I lost sleep worrying first about missing out on the party, would one of my friends hook up with the girl I liked, and then about how practice would go after a sleepless night. I showed up at practice early and did my best to appear fresh in front of my coaches. When my hungover teammates came out of the locker room onto the court, I was already practicing three-point shots. For a while, my sacrifice paid off. I completed the ball handling and defensive drills with purpose and speed while my teammates merely went through the motions. But once we divided up for the scrimmage, my anxiety returned. I ended up guarding a close friend who'd partied especially hard the night before. As I fought through screens and chased him on defense, I could smell the alcohol in his sweat, but he found space and knocked down shots. On offense, I was unassertive and missed the few shots I took. Frustrated and desperate, I pressured him to keep him from shooting over me, but all it took was a simple jab fake for him to drive around me and gain the advantage. When I sprinted to cut him off, he hit me with a step back move. When I lost my balance, he made the shot and then trash talked me loudly enough so that everybody could hear it. My desperation turned into rage. When I pressured him a few possessions later, I got a hand on a pass and deflected the ball towards half court. We both chased hard, but he had the advantage again, so I impulsively shoved him to the floor with both hands. I'll never forget the look of shock and disgust he gave me. Coach rightly yelled at me and told us not to guard each other anymore. At that point, I felt like crying. I'd done, quote-unquote, everything right by not going out and trying to get enough rest, and my hungover friend outplayed me anyway. Later in the locker room, spirits were high as we were cutting off our ankle tape and changing out of our practice gear, as this was the last practice of the week. I tried not to sulk while everyone around me joked and laughed, sharing stories about the fun they'd had the night before. I don't remember ever feeling like more of a loser. I went out that night and drank too much with my friends. 4. The most debilitating symptom of my anxiety was how unnatural the basketball felt in my hands. Whenever I held it, everything seemed wrong. Gripping the ball with stiff, uncooperative fingers led me to awkwardly cock my wrist so as to get it directly behind the ball. But the ball spun off my guide hand in unreliable and unpredictable ways. The more anxious I became, the more my left hand got involved with the shot. I could barely remember how it felt to shoot easily and cleanly. I felt that my teammates and coaches were watching me with either pity or disappointment. In our customary full-court weave shooting drill that began practice, I'd sometimes bounce wide-open mid-range jump shots off the backboard. I occasionally shot air balls from the free-throw line. With every free-throw, my heart raced and I held my breath. When I hit the rim, I was relieved. My troubles on the court bled into other areas of my life. It became almost impossible to enjoy anything, because no matter what I did, the next practice or game was rapidly approaching. Sitting in class or eating in the cafeteria with friends, I counted down the hours. My only moments of relative peace came directly after a practice or game in which I hadn't embarrassed myself. 
I also found some temporary relief in being asleep, so I spent much of my free time lying in bed trying to nap, even when I wasn't tired. Two hours of escape from everything seemed precious, but in compensation for afternoon naps, I sometimes stayed up far too late at night, eating junk food while watching episode after episode of mindless TV. Finally, I decided to see a sports psychologist on campus. 5. Quote, Let me tell you something. Nowadays, everybody's got to go to shrinks and counselors and go on Sally, Jesse, Raphael and talk about their problems. What happened to Gary Cooper, the strong, silent type? That was an American. Tony Soprano. At the student health office, I worried that someone I knew would enter and see me making an appointment. My mental struggles were a closely guarded secret. NBA forward Gordon Hayward spoke of his resistance to seeing a therapist as he worked his way back from a devastating ankle injury. It's hard, he said. It's embarrassing. You want to be the guy that says, I'm strong. I don't need any help. I shared this standard male mindset that seeking help from an outsider was soft and pathetic. I met with a woman named Jenny Shannon. I got the immediate impression that she was a compassionate, trustworthy, and serious person. She assured me that everything was confidential and that my coaches and teammates wouldn't know I'd been there. I did my best to explain to her what I was going through. It was the first time I'd described the situation clearly to anyone, including myself. Revealing the details forced me to contend with the seriousness of my problem. After a few meetings, she told me I was suffering from performance anxiety and depression. Although I knew she was right, hearing the words shocked me. It was difficult to accept where I'd ended up. 6. In his helpful, harrowing book, Darkness Visible, William Styrone describes his struggles. The depression that Styrone experienced was exponentially worse than what I dealt with. In fact, I feel guilty for having been depressed in circumstances that many people might regard as a form of heaven. I was young and healthy, on a full scholarship at an excellent university to play basketball with my friends. But the pain and anguish I experienced were real and all important to me at the time. My entire sophomore year has the character of a nightmare that described the next day feels trivial, but it was traumatic and debilitating when I experienced it. The two states of mind I experienced, as described by Styrone, were confusion and hopelessness. For reasons I can't understand, after sinking into depression, I made very few attempts during my sophomore year to improve my situation until my therapist helped me create a plan. I simply accepted the fact that basketball made me miserable and waited for it to end. Styrone describes his state of mind as being one of unfocused dread, which I can relate to. I was so immersed in my day-to-day -day anxiety that I couldn't think objectively about my situation. I was fixated on one thing, getting through the next practice or game. 7. Quote, The depressed man realizes that all daily routines imply a belief in tomorrow and are cruel jokes since of course tomorrow no longer exists. Tom Wolfe, A Man in Full my worst symptoms occurred during games. Practices were bad enough, but games produced a special kind of dread. My performance on the court landed me out of the playing rotation and on the end of the bench with the walk-ons and injured players. But because I was on scholarship, the coaches didn't give up on me completely. When the outcome had been decided before a game ended and I was sent in to play a few meaningless minutes, I hated being on the court with people watching me. I felt sure that my unreliable hands would produce something awful like an air ball from the free throw line, a humiliation for any player, even a seven-foot center whose primary job is to block shots and dunk. 
It's something beyond humiliation coming from a player who was recruited because of his shooting abilities. So I sat on the bench, hoping that the score stayed too close for the coach to put me into the game. If our opponents were ahead, I pulled for us to get defensive stops and then score. Shamefully, when we had a lead, I pulled for the other team to keep the score close. I sat there, desperately hoping not to play. When I stood up to cheer for teammates, it was all an act. I didn't much care whether we won or lost. Losing was actually better, because at least there wouldn't be a celebration in the locker room, forcing me to pretend I was excited. When we won, and my friends had played well, I felt jealous. When the game ended and I hadn't played, and we lost, which was how most games turned out, I breathed a sigh of relief. I was so consumed with my secret goal of not playing that I didn't realize how bad my condition had become. I didn't have the mental capacity or fortitude to try to make a change. I look back on my behavior with shame. Sometimes I lost myself in fantasies about being seriously injured in practice. If I'd had the choice to quit playing basketball forever, or better yet, to see the sport banished from planet Earth, I'd have been overjoyed. But quitting would mean losing my scholarship, and I couldn't justify putting financial pressure on my family to help me pay for the remainder of my schooling. I felt trapped because I wasn't sure I could endure two and a half more years of misery. Styrone, a well-known and highly regarded American writer, explains, quote, of the many dreadful manifestations of the disease, both physical and psychological, a sense of self-hatred, or put less categorically, a failure of self-esteem, is one of the most universally experienced symptoms. And I had suffered more and more from a general feeling of worthlessness as the malady had progressed, end quote. I understand. I became altogether unconcerned with myself or my future and began indulging in shallow pleasures wherever I found them with no regard for my own health or well-being. I used binge drinking and junk food eating as escapes. I also spent many empty hours mindlessly scrolling my phone. 8. I periodically spoke with family members in Oregon who watched my games on the internet. They never saw my practices so were under the illusion that I still had the skills they remembered from my high school days and my best freshman games at Regis. They wondered why I wasn't playing and assumed that the coach was treating me unfairly. Too ashamed to admit that I was no longer a good player and that I didn't really want to play, I lied and told everybody who cared that, yes, the coach was to blame, and that my poor performances during my brief on-court appearances were due to my not having time to establish a rhythm and work myself into the game. I said this so often that the dysfunctional part of my mind tried to believe it. My dad urged me to politely ask the coach what I needed to do to earn more playing time. Those were the moments when I had to face the truth, that I didn't want to play and I didn't want to improve. What I wanted was to go unnoticed until the season ended. This made talking to the coach impossible. Instead of facing the truth, I lied to my dad and to the rest of my family. Then I returned to the double think I'd been engaging in for months, believing my lie. Coach served as my scapegoat. He lost his temper easily, and his style was not a good fit for my personality. But he wasn't the root cause of my problems, and he certainly wasn't the unapproachable tyrant that I made him out to be to my family. Had I gone to see him, he would have welcomed me into his office, listened patiently, and offered an honest response. But I knew I'd become a bad player, so why would I go ask for more playing time? It was clearly the correct decision to play other guards instead of me, and I was happy to remain on the bench. Much of my anxiety and shame actually came from my projections of how my assistant coach, Eric Daniels, felt about me. He was an excellent coach in person and gave me every opportunity to succeed. 
He had recruited me in Oregon, and he consistently stuck up for me at Regis. He encouraged me and often checked in with me to see how I was doing, but unfortunately, his presence in the gym made me feel anxious and guilty for having let him down. The graduate assistant, Steve Ledesma, seemed to intuitively understand what I was going through. He often ate lunch with me and spent time with me outside of basketball. I remember clearly how much his support meant to me, and I tried to offer similar support to struggling players when I became a graduate assistant, something that would be inappropriate coming from a head coach or elite assistant. I reached my lowest point in my depression at the University of Colorado Springs. While I watched from the bench, my teammates had an especially rough first half, after which coach vehemently expressed his disappointment in our halftime meeting. After that, back on the court, my first halftime shot bounced off the backboard and coach saw it. All I remember is him screaming at me, you don't want to play, you don't want to play. So he'd seen through my pathetic secret and now it had become public knowledge. Nine, I was jealous of non-athlete friends who enjoyed a five-week vacation between semesters while I was stuck with my miserable sport twice per day. Scrolling social media, everyone I saw looked much happier than I was. We were given six days of freedom around Christmas, which were far from relaxing and rejuvenating. I tried to make time for everything and everyone, which made me feel like I hadn't made enough time for anything or anybody. The days raced by as I sacrificed sleep and crammed in as much as possible. I felt like an unhappy zoo animal that's released into the wild just enough to realize what it's been missing, but not long enough to enjoy its brief freedom. Before I knew it, my last day had arrived. I'd booked my flight back to Denver at the latest possible time, 4.30 a.m. on the morning of our first practice back, foolishly thinking I'd be able to enjoy my last evening in my hometown when I went out for pizza with my family and some close friends. Despite the warmth and love they gave me, I was overcome with dread and despair. With each passing moment, my 3.15 a.m. alarm was inching closer. After the alarm, I could look forward to the hell of airport security, a crowded flight back to Denver, driving to campus, and showing up at the dreaded gym to resume my role as an underachieving disappointment. I hadn't even considered picking up a basketball during my days off, so I worried that my shot would feel worse than ever when I returned. I'd be a tired and nervous wreck all day. So at dinner, I faked smiles and did my best to joke with friends as I took sad bites of pizza even though I wasn't hungry. A heavy pressure rested in my chest. When my Oma told me she loved me as she was leaving, I felt tears well up in my eyes, but I bit my lip and forced my emotions back down to where they came from. After dinner, when my friends headed happily to the bars, I headed home with only six hours of freedom left. All right, well, that wasn't so much fun, but hopefully it was of some use or insightful for athletes who are going through similar struggles or who might someday relate to my experience as a sophomore in college. If you'd like to hear the whole book or read the whole book, you should visit billyhanson.net forward slash book or click the link in the show notes below on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you know someone, an athlete or a parent or a coach, who might be interested in my book, it would be great if you shared the book with them as well. Other ways to support me is to leave a review, a podcast review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you have picked up a copy of the book and you're enjoying it, it would really help me out to leave a Amazon review so that other people might discover it. Thank you so much for listening. It really means a lot that people are listening and enjoying this. And always feel free to reach out to me with feedback or suggestions or just to say hello.
See you next time. It's the sauce.